Uh, I'd now like to welcome uh, Gustavo Campos to read today's scripture for us. He will be reading in Espanol. Uh, the um, English will be up on the screen for you to follow along. Um, but Gustavo will come, read, and then I will be back for today's teaching. Pero ahora, por parte de la ley, se ha manifestado la justicia de Dios, testificada por la ley y por los profetas. La justicia de Dios por medio de la fe en Jesucristo, para todos los que creen en Él, porque no hay diferencia, por cuanto todos pecaron y están destituidos de la gloria de Dios, siendo justificados gratuitamente por su gracia, mediante la redención que es en Cristo Jesús, a quien Dios puso como propiciación por medio de la fe en su sangre, para manifestar su justicia a causa de haber pasado por alto, en su paciencia, los pecados pasados, con la mira de manifestar en este tiempo la justicia, a fin de que Él sea el justo y el que justifica al que es en la fe de Jesús. ¿Dónde, pues, está la jactancia? Queda excluida. ¿Por cuál ley? ¿Por la de las obras? No, sino por la fe, ley de la fe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Gustavo. Uh, in the Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian, uh, there is this character named Kuil, Uh, who helps the Mandalorian uh, throughout the series. Uh, and every time he's in some kind of debate with someone, Kuil, uh, or some kind of conversation, and he's just done having that conversation, uh, he always ends the conversation by making his final statement and then saying, I have spoken. And then he walks away. Um, I love it. Uh, I have used that statement way too many times. Um, Be careful with it. Could get you into some trouble, uh, depending on the situation. Uh, and also, you should totally watch that series. It's so good, uh, especially if you're a Star Wars fan. Uh, but of course, for Kuil, there's finality to his statement, right? For him, it's done. There's no more to be said. It is finished. Now, Jesus uh, knew what it meant to come and accomplish something and then to declare it is finished. I have spoken. It's done. And the question, though, of course, when we think about Jesus, and we think about Jesus making that kind of definitive statement, much like Kuil, I have spoken. Jesus makes that statement, it is finished. It's been accomplished. The question, though, of course, is what is it that's been finished? For Jesus, what was it that was accomplished? Well, today we start a short series Uh, looking at the finished work of Jesus. It's crazy, but in just a couple of weeks, uh, we'll be celebrating Easter. Of course, Easter being the day that we uh, recognize and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in many ways, this is the most important event that has happened in all of human history. However, before understanding the significance of Jesus' resurrection, there are other aspects of his work as Savior that are just as important because the finished work of Jesus is his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so over the course of the next three weeks, again, leading up to Easter, we want to take a look at those three things, his life, his death, his resurrection, and see why it is this work that causes us, causes Jesus rather to say, it is finished, it is done. And our goal uh, in these weeks leading up is really twofold. First, what I want us to see is that the, there's cosmic implications for the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
They are universal and powerful for all seasons of life at every stage of our lives. But the second thing that I want us to see is though there are, the implications are far-reaching, they're also incredibly applicable to us in the moment, right now. And of course, I'm thinking about right now in the midst of very turbulent and difficult times. They give particular encouragement and clarity for us right now. You know, when I think about our city and I think about her people and I think about those who are impacted most by this current season, of course, medical professionals and first responders, those, those who are struggling to survive and to attain basic provision, those who are not safe in the midst of all of this, uh, it's heartbreaking. And these are times, whether you're a Christian or not, where our faith is really challenged. And while there's a thousand different things that could be considered in times like these, I want us to consider for the next several weeks the core central claims of Christianity and to see what they have to say about this moment for us, this time. Because Christianity is not a faith of pure uh, theological claims or propositions, though we have those. Rather, Christianity, the Christian faith, is trusting in the one who brings light to darkness, who brings life where there is death, to bring hope where there is despair, who brings joy where there is sorrow. And Jesus is that light, that life, that hope, that joy. It is Jesus who declared, it is finished These things have been accomplished for you. They are done. I have spoken. So how does then that finished work of Jesus apply to a city in lockdown and her people in fear, her people struggling for some to survive? That's the goal of what we want to see over these next few weeks. Now, the last framing statement that I want to make about this series is what I hope we see, honestly, is that our hope, particularly in the midst of COVID-19, cannot ultimately rest in the places where we so often look. For example, though we must demand righteousness and equity and justice from our elected leaders, our ultimate hope is not in our government. Though we must listen to the advice and the wisdom and counsel of healthcare professionals right now, Our ultimate hope cannot be in medical professionals. You know, though we ought to care about and be concerned about the economic impact that is going to uh, come as a result of this season in our city and in our nation, our ultimate hope cannot be in our economic stability or those seeking to mitigate the problems within our economic system. The reason why is they cannot provide us any hope beyond the frailty of humans. They will all fail us. They will fail, we will fail each other. And I don't want to be bleak, but they will all fail us even to the point of death. It's very likely, very possible. And even at our best, we are limited in knowledge and stamina and wisdom This is human frailty, and anything that's dependent on human frailty will fail us. And so for the next three weeks, if you are a Christian, 
Be reminded of where your hope rests. If you're not a Christian, glad you're here. Consider the hope that produces peace beyond all understanding. With all that said, today, let's consider first the life of Jesus. Now, to begin, I actually don't want to spend much time looking at what Jesus did in his life. Uh, There's a lot that could be said, and it would be good and wise to go through and see the actual deeds of Jesus, to see what he did in his life. Uh, But what I want to consider is not so much the good deeds and the righteousness of Jesus in, in the, in, um, by way of seeing what he's done. Because actually, that's not that controversial of an idea, and it's not actually that unique to Christianity to look and admire the works of Jesus, the specific things that he's done. In fact, to only look at the works of Jesus uh, without seeing why those works matter actually doesn't give us a whole lot of anything. It doesn't produce for us that much significance unless we also see why his good works matter, why his life is part of his finished work. And so what I want to do, is I want to address the life of Jesus and the reasons why his life matters by essentially looking at four words in Romans 3. And as a side note, we'll be using this passage for next week as well, uh, when we look at the death of Jesus. Uh, There's so much that's in there. But here are those four words that I want us to take a look at. I want to take a look at the word righteousness, the word justice, the word grace, and the word boasting. Right, those four words. I hope we can get clarity around those four words. Uh, try to understand their meaning, meaning, and then also consider why they matter, both eternally and also right now. Okay, so first, righteousness. Uh, it's interesting about so righteousness and justification. They're actually challenging words for us to sometimes understand fully in English, uh, because we tend to have we tend to see them as two very distinct concepts righteousness and justice. However, in Greek, they actually come from the exact same word. Uh, Righteousness and justice are integrally tied. Uh, Righteousness and justice or justification are really two sides of the same coin. Uh, And so when we're looking at righteousness, one way that we in English tend to define righteousness, and I think it's a a right definition, uh, one definition is that righteousness is an acceptable standard. Or it's a measure of our ability to be accepted. Uh, Tim Keller, I don't know if I'm allowed to uh, reference him. I'm going to shamelessly reference Tim Keller. Um, (laughs) But Tim Keller, uh, he refers to uh, righteousness as a performance record. A performance record. I think that's a helpful way to think about it. The standard that is presented in order for one to be deemed good enough and acceptable and in nearly every area of our life, this is how things are determined. It's through performance records. Now, as an example, if you're applying for a job, what do you do? Well, you get together a resume. And this resume, it's going to list your education, your experiences, your accomplishments, and anything else that you think necessary for acceptance in a position. And then someone takes that resume, they review all of your accomplishments, all of your accomplishments, all of your performance records, uh, and they make a determination as to whether or not you're good enough to be accepted for that job. Uh, applying for college is another one. 
that we're probably very familiar with. You send in transcripts, you send in test results, you send them your community service uh, hours, your essays, uh, and then you sit down with an admissions counselor who basically assesses you, assesses your academic record, your social accomplishments, maybe even your personality, and then makes a determination whether or not you should be accepted. Uh, we do this with relationships. I mean, this is happening more and more in our modern era. To some degree, I mean, what is dating? And in particular, what is online dating? Except the fact, I mean, essentially what you're doing there is you, are, uh, you list the things that you want people to know about you in order to be deemed acceptable. And of course, you're also expecting the same from someone else. You'd like to know their best qualities before you decide to go on a date with them. I mean, that's kind of the basis of online dating. Right? We don't put our failings out there. Rather, we always put forward our best. It is how it works in our modern age. All right? No job resume lists the time uh, that you missed that important deadline. No college application lists the time you plagiarized that one English essay. Right? No dating profile lists character flaws or weird obsessions that you might have. Rather, we are always trained from the time that we are very young to work hard and to achieve acceptance by presenting our best. And in the end, we just hope and we pray that it's enough. Now, what's interesting is that this is how most world religions approach God as well. And even some Christians approach God in this way. Most view God as the one reviewing the resume. Most rely on their performance record in order to be accepted. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people have an affinity for Jesus. If, one, if Jesus was the best, one of the best people to ever live, then if I can just be like Jesus, then I have to be accepted by God. And so, in, in other words, righteousness is a performance record. The second word I want to take a look at, though, is justification. Again, justification and righteousness do have very similar meanings, uh, but here's the distinction. If righteousness is the performance record, then justification is the declaration of being righteous. It is the thing that takes us from pursuing righteousness to now feeling validated by that righteousness, by that performance record. Uh, justification is what it means to get the job on the basis of a great resume. And what's interesting about that is it feels really good when you're justified. It feels really good when you get the job or you're accepted into college or you get that match on that dating profile. When we achieve the things we've set out to accomplish, we have a sense of validation. It is almost like in that moment of justification, we have proven our right to exist. We have proven why our lives matter. Now, we all have those things that we look to to justify ourselves, uh, things that we think will make our lives matter. And the question, of course, <laughs> naturally is going to be, what are the things that if you attained, you could say, ah, yes, now my life matters? You know, just as some examples, some things that I have seen either in my own life or in the lives of others, um, parents who look to their children and say, ah, I live for them. They make my life matter. Or maybe 
the businessman who's I feel justified or like my life matters if I just make that one that one more huge deal. Or the artist who says, I just need to paint that one more beautiful portrait. Or the, you know, the lawyer, if I just win one more case. Or the musician, if I just write one more song. Or for the student, if I just have one more degree. Whatever it is, I don't know what it is for you. But if we could just attain these things, then our lives matter. That, my friends, is justification. Justifying our right to exist. But here's why I draw these things out. The question has to be asked. What happens then when the striving for acceptance and the goal of justification is not achieved? What happens if you never get what you think you always wanted and whatever you thought was going to make your life matter? Or what happens if you actually do achieve it the thing you always wanted, and then you realize it wasn't enough. You know, famously, there have been many successful people that have reflected on this. Uh, John D. Rockefeller famously said, how much money does it take to make a man happy? Just one more dollar. Uh, Jim Carrey, the comedian, famously said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Even achieving our greatest dreams and our greatest goals isn't enough. It doesn't actually justify us. And then, of course, probably most applicable to us, what happens when seasons of life strip you of your performance records? All right, we are currently in the midst of a season when all performance records and daily striving for justification are being challenged. I mean, for some... That might, that might be felt more palpably, but we're all feeling it in certain ways. You know, for some, you know, is this the end of my business? Is this the end of my career? For some, even more so, it's, is this how it ends for me? Is this how it ends for my family? There are people wrestling with that. Maybe some of you now are even wrestling with that question. I mean, the reality of life is that we can never guarantee anything. I mean, isn't it the case that it's always said that the only things that we can guarantee in life are death and taxes? And I, just, I heard that they're pushing tax day, so that is completely upended. What is happening in our world? Uh, these seasons most quickly make plain to us what performance record we have been trying to bolster what justification we've been trying to achieve. But question for you. What if there was something more than our striving? What if there was a performance record and an experience of justification that could not be taken away? What if there was hope and comfort and joy completely independent from anything that's shakable? And what if that perfect performance record and complete justification were not achieved, but rather given to you? That brings us to our third word, grace. I want to show you uh, the radical nature of Christianity. Uh, it is what makes Christianity completely unique and more life-giving than anything else possibly could 
And I want us to see that, but I'm going to reread for us from our passage, uh, verses 21 through 24. Let me reread this for you so you can hear all of this together. But now, apart from the law of the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. According to Paul, there is righteousness. There is a performance record that is given, which justifies those who believe in Jesus. This performance record is not achieved, but rather it's received. And whether you are a Christian or not, this is completely counterintuitive to everything that we know. And the Bible calls this, according to verse 24, grace. This is grace, to be given a performance record and to be justified by it. And this is such a uniquely Christian concept. Uh, Most trust their own performance records in order to be found acceptable. But the gospel is something very different. For there is a perfect and divine righteousness that is given to us, that's not achieved. And by that performance record, we are accepted. The gospel is 2 Corinthians 5, which says, speaking of Jesus, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, this is grace. Grace is that you are being offered more than anything you could possibly achieve. And the perfect, sinless life of Jesus, the life that so many look to as worthy of emulating, that sinless perfection, that sinless life is offered to you. The performance record is extended to you. And by grace it is given, and by grace you are welcomed in and accepted by it. It is the works of Jesus that makes us acceptable before God. It's interesting, funny, in our denomination, uh, there are a series of exams uh, for one who's pursuing ordination in our denomination. Uh, There's written exams, there's a committee exam, we sit before a small group of people uh, and are examined, and then there's this final exam where you're sitting before the regional governing body of our denomination, uh, and so you've got a bunch of pastors from all over the place, essentially there, uh, where they can ask you anything they want about anything. Um, I still, I still uh, have nightmares uh, over that season of life. Of course, it's terrifying and it's nerve-wracking, even when things are going perfectly well. But there's this one notoriously trick question that sometimes gets asked, and it's usually asked uh, jokingly. It's kind of become a joke. Um, unless you get it wrong, you don't want to get this question wrong. But here's the, here's the question. The question is, are you saved by works? Right? Take a second. How would you answer that question? Um, if you're being examined and you hear that question one day ever, uh, just know it's a trick question. Because if you say yes, the rebuttal is, well, it is by grace you have been saved, not by works. So, wrong answer. But if you say no, the rebuttal is, well, yes, you have. You have been saved not by your own works, but by the works of Jesus. And so in that situation, 
That's the right answer. You're welcome. Uh, But by Christ's work, by Christ's perfection, we are justified and given what we need to be found acceptable and righteous before God. The question, though, of course, got question upon question upon question here. What then exactly are we given? What are we? What exactly are we welcomed into? Well, that's where important. That's where understanding grace is important. Um, I'm going to get more to this next week, but I want to understand a little bit of the difference between grace and mercy. Uh, we'll understand mercy a little bit more next week. Uh, but if you had to parse out those two words, grace and mercy, how would you make the distinction between the two? Could you even make the distinction between the two? They are different concepts. Here's essentially where I think the distinction is. So mercy is not being given what you deserve. So imagine it this way. Imagine you have uh, someone who enters in the palace of a king, and he tries to rob the king, but he gets caught. And now he's standing before the king, and he says to the king, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. Mercy is a king looking at this man and saying, you deserve punishment, but I'm going to let you go. Now, in that moment, there ought to be joy and celebration, and um, there ought to be joy and celebration for this person, right? They've been let go. But see, that's not being given what you deserve. That's mercy. Grace, though, is a bit different because grace is being given that which you don't deserve. So grace is a man who enters into the palace of a king, tries to rob the king, gets caught. Grace is that man now standing before the king and the king saying, you deserve punishment, but instead I will not punish you. Rather, I will welcome you and adopt you as my son with all the rights and the privileges that come as my son so that now the whole palace is yours. That's grace. Do you see the difference? One removes a penalty while the other provides a new identity and a purpose. And just as a side note, we will have to deal with this. We'll look at this next week. Uh, We have to understand what it means for the penalty to be taken from us. That is actually the significance of Christ's death. Stay tuned for part two next week. But for this, but this idea of grace, it really is the great scandal of the gospel. Grace is a scandalous idea that unless we realize our position before God, we never fully appreciate it. But when we see what we have been given, which is adoption by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, then oh, how all of our cares and our burdens and even the pleasures of this world, our performance records, all of it pales in comparison to this great knowledge of what we've been given. Finally, uh, how do we receive that grace? Well, look at verse 22. It says this, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. What does it mean to believe? Many say they believe, but what does that actually mean? Well, I think one of the great articulations of what it means to actually believe is found in verse 27. Look at that question. Verse 27 says, where then is boasting? That's what I want to look at, number four. Fourth word, boasting. You know, verse 27, that's a simple question uh, with a very complicated answer. 
But essentially is when you are needing comfort and validation and assurance, in what do you boast? I mean, right now, when everything seems to be going wrong and you are in need of some firm, something firm and stable, in what do you boast? And what does it mean to boast? I think one of the best articulations of what it means to boast is actually found in the famous story of David and Goliath, uh, which you can find in 1 Samuel 17, and it shows what it means to boast. Uh, in the first few verses, you have Goliath with his great strength and his matchless armor. They're described as his power. And then when he comes to mock the people of God, uh, Israel, he boasts in his great strength and in his might. Why? Because those gave him validation and even a sense of comfort as he went into battle. He believed that it would be those things that saved him. And so as a result, he boasted in his strength. However, David, when he confronts Goliath, he does not boast in his strength, for he had none. Instead, hear his words. This is what verse 45 of 1 Samuel 17 says. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. All those gathered here will know that it is not by, your, by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And what is that? That's boasting. That is boasting in the Lord, not in his own strength, but in the might and the power of his God. And so to boast is to say, I have nothing. I have nothing of great value. I have accomplished nothing of great worth. Instead, what matters in my life is not what I've done, but what Jesus has done for me. You know, when we have that posture, when that's our posture, though we may still experience suffering, though we may still feel pain and experience anxiety, in the midst of even the most disorienting seasons, when we boast in Jesus and what he has done for us, there is still hope and joy and rest. And if you are hearing me today, and that's, that's not you, I want you to know I'm talking to you. I'm talking to myself. These great truths are reminders that I have needed so desperately for myself. To be reminded that the great work that Christ has accomplished for you and for me, that it provides stability and a foundation that no virus or sickness can take. It provides riches that no tanking economy can provide. It provides you a king who welcomes you into his kingdom with open arms, adopting you as his child. And when we remember such things, there still may be fear and anxiety and anger and a million other emotions, but there's also hope and there's also joy in the midst of it all. Why? Because what we are given in Jesus cannot be taken away. And when we trust in what Jesus has done for us, even in the midst of those difficult and trying times, we can still sing that old hymn, that my hope is built nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. 
all other ground is sinking sand. My friends, I too, (laughs) I have a lot of worries about what's to come. My heart breaks for many of you as you wrestle through these times, concerned about what is to come next. I don't have answers. I know that you don't have answers either. I don't know what is to come in regards to the coming days and weeks and months or longer. But whatever might come, Whatever changes in life come, there is hope and there is stability in trusting that whatever befalls us, Jesus has said, I have spoken. It is finished. And his sinless, perfect life has given us access to life beyond our circumstances. And nothing can take that away from us, not even COVID-19. And so would you with me, would you cling to these truths, cling to these promises in the midst of this time, that what Jesus has done, it is done. It is finished for us. And it provides us hope, something to cling to. Just trust that promise with me. Let's pray. <sighs> Father, again, we come to you. Um, acknowledging this really disorienting and crazy season that we're in. Lord, we know you see us. We know that you, you know what we're going through. You know the anxieties that we're feeling and the fears and the uncertainties. And God, again, we do come to you saying, Lord, would you intervene? We know that you're sovereign. We know that you're powerful. Would you intervene? Would you end this? But God, even in the midst of this, we trust that you're big and powerful enough. But we also know that you're doing something in the midst of all of this, for you're in control. And Lord, if anything, if this season, if one of the things that you're doing in this season is showing us the ways in which we have too much relied on our own performance records, our own righteousness, our own desire to justify ourselves, if if that's what you're showing to us, then thank you. May we acknowledge your goodness in that, even in the midst of these hard times. And may we truly cling to the promises that we have been spending this time considering that Jesus has done something for us that we could never have done. It is finished. It is final. He has spoken. And may that cause us to have a renewed sense of joy and hope and peace and rest, even in the midst of chaos. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.